0: Why don't you guys meet me in Romans chapter 15? Romans chapter 15. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and and go ahead and keep it raised high um, so that someone can see you and then get you a copy of the Bible. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, please keep the one that we're handing out. It is our gift to you so that you can grow in an understanding and knowledge of Christ. Um, Romans chapter 15, if you have the Bible in which we are handing out, that's going to be on page 617-617. Again, page 617. So here's what we've been. Um, last week, Sean was here preaching with us, and, and he began to cover, uh, again, what Paul is talking about with strong and weak, weak and strong. And, and what he was talking about is that how we need to bear with the failings of the weak. And, and what Paul has been getting at since the beginning of chapter 14, verse 1, is how we are able to be one as a people. Um, How are we able to be one, both Jew and Gentile, both weak and strong? Um, um, The people who come from different backgrounds, how are we to have this unity in order for us to fulfill and live out the mission that God has for the church? And the only way that we're able to do that is in the work and through the work of Christ Jesus on our behalf. So here's what Paul does, I believe, here, verses 7, 15, 7 through 21, what we have tonight, which is a large chunk of scripture. We're going to spend the bulk of our time from verse 7 all the way to 12, And then we're going to race through the last part. But here's what Paul is doing. I believe Paul is wrapping up his argument that he started in chapter 14, verse 1. And I also believe that in it, Paul is wrapping up the reason for why he wrote Romans chapter 15. In essence, why he wrote the book of Romans. I believe this is Paul is getting to the very end of this letter. In fact, the majority of the letter from here is is him talking about where he wants to go to see Rome. It's him telling you, hey, my uncle says, what's up? I'll see you when I see you, right? It's just kind of the end of a letter. Um, this is the, the last part of wrapping up the gospel. And what he does is he takes a step back and gives us this big cosmic view of the gospel. So there's two questions that I want to be able to ask and then answer for us uh, this morning. The first one is, what is the mission of God? What is the mission of God? What, or in other words, what is God doing in this world? What is he up to? What is this grand picture of the gospel? And the second question is, what is our response to it? What is the response of the people who call themselves followers of Christ um, to to God? And so, what is God doing, and essentially, how do we respond to that? And so, we'll look at that this morning. But before we do, would you bow your heads and pray with me as we look at God's text? God, we thank you so much. I thank you, Lord, for every person in this room. I thank you for the opportunity for us to be the church. God, I thank you for this particular church that you've given us and that you've allowed me and the elders and the leaders here to be a part of, Lord. just to be able to lead and serve. God, we are, we are over-blessed in that. God, we thank you that we have an opportunity to open up your word and, and hear from you. And God, we know that your word is living and active. And we trust that your word, as it speaks about itself, says that it does not return void, Lord. So would you water our souls and our lives today, God? Would you encourage us, Lord, with this, this cosmic picture of what you're doing in this world? May the affections and love of Christ, Lord, sink deep into our lives, Lord, that we be people who follow you as we've been welcomed into your family. And maybe welcome others. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the things we were finally able to do in our household is uh, we borrowed the movie Remember the Titans so we can watch it with our kids. And, and I don't know if you've ever seen Remember the Titans, but Remember the Titans is a football movie about a high school football team. And, and you don't have to like football to like the Remember, Remember the Titans. Um, if you do like football, by the way, that, that's, that's really good, but you don't have to. Um, in fact, if you were up late last night watching football, you probably would have noticed that uh, this team that we have here in Arizona uh, State, actually, um, won. And there's another team down in Tucson. Unfortunately, just to their demise, they just came up short against a team that we lost to, too. So whatever, you know. But that puts us in the Cardinals as the only team in the state of Arizona with one loss. Anyways, back to Paul. So Paul, or back to Paul, back to the Titans. We're not even at Paul yet, right? This is just the illustration. So... So Remember the Titans, and here's why I wanted my boys to see this, right? My boys have a biracial experience in their life, and so we're trying to, I'm always trying to show my kids it wasn't always like this, right? And so when you, re, when you watch the movie Remember the Titans, you see there's this kind of juxtapose. There, there's, a, there's a black coach, and there's a white coach, and the black coach is played by Denzel Washington, which for me, any movie he plays in, I watch as fast as possible, right? So Denzel Washington, and then the white coach is uh, an, some other guy, Right? <laughs> 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 He's a white guy. <laughs> and so then you have the, the star player who's black, um, another star player who's white, and then you kind of have these juxtapos, like, left side, strong side, wh- whatever it is, right? You have this, this in this, this movie, but what transcends football is what's happening on this team because what's happening on this team is the coach knows they cannot live or do what they're supposed to do as a team, their mission, to play football and win games unless the white kids and the black kids actually get together. And, and understand what it's like to be one, what it's like to be on a team together. And so they go away to this camp, and they learn how to share each other's stories and how to become one in the midst of this very, very hostile place that to be able to fulfill their mission. They, they, they're not able to do it unless they become one. And, and I like that and share that because Paul is trying to do that. In fact, Paul's just not doing this to the Roman church. Paul's been doing this in the entire New Testament. Because when you read all of Paul's epistles, it means the letters that he wrote, what you see at the very heartbeat of his theology is how the gospel of Jesus Christ reconciles Jew and Gentile. And if you're not familiar with that language, a Jewish person was anyone that was an ethnic Jew, and a Gentile was anyone that that was not ethnic Jewish person. And Paul is saying the gospel is on the scene doing something, and there's no way that we can begin to live out the mission that God has for his church until we understand how to be one. And Paul has been talking about this love. He's been talking about how the weak, which is usually uh, categorized as Jewish people, need to not look down upon the strong, who are the Gentiles. And then the strong, the Gentiles, should not look down upon the Jews or the weak, that they should be able to be one in Christ Jesus. Because let's step back for a second. Look at the Roman-Greco world at the time in which Paul wrote this. There was much division. There was division ethnically that the Greeks didn't like the, the Romans. The Romans thought that they were superior to everybody else. Um, There was social-economical division where the poor were over here and the rich were over here. There were definitely continued ethnic issues with Jews as well as Greeks as well as Jewish people. And then the sharpest division. The sharpest division in the roman Greco world was religious. And that is you had the Jewish people with with their their strict adherence to the Old Testament law and and their monotheistic God. And then you had the the Gentiles— which were, had multiple gods, polytheistic culture, and they clashed and they clashed. However, um, Paul was saying that's not the way it's supposed to be in the church. And I believe that Paul knew this because he understood his own story. I, I personally believe that when God calls people, he doesn't just call you to a vocation. He doesn't just call you a particular ministry. He gives you the life experience for you to qualify you for that. That he qualifies you by that call. And if you just theologically reflect and look at your own life and say, okay, how am I here? And some of you guys who are a little bit younger, God is still working through you and going, okay, I may know what God may have for me next. Because here's how he's worked in my life throughout my whole life. Even if you haven't been a Christian for that long, you can look at God's hand and how he's moving you. Well, Paul knew what God was up to. This whole reconciliation thing, this whole diversity thing, that wasn't Paul's idea. He knew it was God's. Because when you hear Paul's story, Paul's story was that Paul was a man who loved God. He was a Jewish man who was strict in following all the Jewish laws. He knew the whole Old Testament front and back. Any sword drills, he killed it, right? He knew everything. He'd been to every VBS camp, every Christian camp. He walked down the aisle several times, right? That that was Paul. But Paul really didn't know Jesus. In fact, he persecuted the church. And then actually, on, on a way to persecute the church, God revealed himself to him, Christ did, the resurrected Christ. He blinds Paul, and Paul's blinded, and he hears this, this, this language, this words. He goes, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, who are you? And he goes, I'm Jesus, the one who you're persecuting. What he was saying was, if you, if you mess with my people, you're messing with me. And in that moment, Paul had this encounter with God, and the gospel just wrecked his life. And he opened his eyes, and he was able to see as the man prayed for him, and his name was actually changed from Saul to Paul. And God says, here's what I'm going to do to you, man. I'm going to use you to go into all the Gentile lands and preach the gospel. And then Paul's experience, experience matters. Paul's first ministry experience was working at a church in Antioch. And this experience began to shape him. Because I, I, I just challenge you to just look at your life, theologically reflect, and see what God is doing in your life. You may know what God may have for you. You may know. For, for me, I, I do this all the time. I'm convinced. I've tried to move to California probably 17 times. I tried to move to Denver. Um, I tried to sneak away from God and get to California, and he just met me like, no, right? You're in Blythe. Go back. And so that, like, I wanted to get back home so bad, and God was like, this is home. I'm convinced. Um, so I came here at 17 years old. Um, God uh, allowed me in my own sin and my own choices to be able to go to college and do everything you're not supposed to do in college, and, and, then, and then he then he met me. Now, I would have loved to have my eyes be blind and like, you're no longer Ricardo, you're Richard. That would have been great, but that, that, that didn't happen, right? I've always been weirded out about being completely 100% African-American with a Latin name, but whatever, right? So, so God meets me, changes my life, and then, and then so I leave Tempe. I go into exile for God to work on me. It, it was Peoria. So I go to exile, and for the, come back to the East Valley, and then eventually I'm back here in Tempe, with the opportunity to be able to share the gospel with people who were in a lot of the situation that I was in. And even more particular, even the ministry that I do outside of the church stuff is being the football chapel on the ASU football team. And so when I see these guys in these chairs, and they're looking at me with the cool, like, yo, yeah, yeah, whatever, dude, I got it. I'm like, I know you. I was, I knew you. You look really familiar. That's all right. Just wait. Just wait. And I love that. Well, Paul is experiencing is going, here I am at the Antioch church. And this is going to set the stage for what Paul understands about the gospel and God's mission. At the Antioch church, there, there are people from Jerusalem. There are people from the, the Roman Greco world. There's a man named Simeon who's a leader there, who's, who's a black man from Africa. Paul who's from Tarsus. There's this multicultural leadership. And there, the church begins to thrive. It, it, early on, this is Acts chapter 11. And then the people who were not a part of the church, the, the people who were not followers of Christ, they begin to look at the church in Antioch. And they didn't get it. Because everywhere else in the culture, you see, certain races hung out with certain races. Certain economic classes hung out only with certain economic classes. However, within the people of the church, what they saw was there was Jew and Gentile. There was Greek. There was barbarian. There were rich. There were poor. And somehow they worshiped together. And so they didn't know what to call them. In fact, they said, here's what we know to be, to be true about them. Though they are from different parts of the, of the world, though they're from different sides of the street, different political parties, um, different socioeconomic brackets, there's one thing that they center on, and that is that they follow this man named Jesus Christ, who they believe was the Messiah. They follow him closely, that they want to look like him. And so what did they call him? They called them Little Christ, which translates to means Christians. And that was the first time that the church were actually called Christians by people who didn't follow Jesus because he saw the uniqueness of what God was doing in Christ and them following them. Well, that was Paul's experience. And from there forth, wherever Paul went to plant the gospel, he always planted the gospel and then the church arose from the gospel in cities where there were a unique, diverse groups of people. Everywhere he went because he understood what God was doing. You say, okay, what then is the mission of God? What is this mission, and how do we respond to it? Pick up with me in verse 7 here. Paul starts here, chapter 15, verse 7. He says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We, we always stop when we say a therefore, and we ask, what is the therefore? Therefore. What is he talking about? Well, if you read the f- couple of verses before this, he says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another, to live in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. What is God doing in the world? For, first and foremost, Paul is saying, welcome one another. How? He says, don't you remember how God and Christ has welcomed you? Um, the, the way that this thing gets going in our life is you've got to understand what God is doing. He's welcoming you. And think about this. How did God welcome you? How did God welcome us? He welcomed us without condition. God wasn't looking at you and going, oh, I'm trying to build this kingdom, and you know what? Your resume looks really good. God never said, hey, in order for you to kind of get a part of this kingdom business, I need you to cut your hair. Uh, I need you to figure some things out. Um, I need you to just, just, come on, get a job or something. No, no condition. He just welcomes you. We say this all the time. He loves you because he loves you. And Paul's saying, can you begin to welcome people in the way that Christ has welcomed you? Because here's what he says, all of this happens that Christ welcomed you to glorify God, to glorify God. We, we know what it's like um, to be welcomed, right, don't we? And then we know what it's like to not be welcomed. I think about this on a Sunday, I can always tell the new people when they show up here, when it's the first time, especially in the morning time, they're usually here really early. Um, they're looking around, they're looking through the Bibles, they're, look, they're asking for stuff, and I'm like, how are you doing, this is your first time here, how'd you know? And our people don't show up and <laughs> you, you'll learn, <laughs> right? And, and I just want to see how we'll welcome them, we know, um, we know what it's like to be unwelcome. I, I remember dating this girl when I was probably a junior in high school, and I heard her and her mom having an, a conversation about me, her mom was talking, I was in another room, And the next day at school, I said, hey, I don't think I'm going to come to your house anymore. She goes, why? I'm like, I don't think your mom wants me there. And she goes, well, what makes you think that? I'm like, well, yesterday when I heard your mom say, hey, when is he he going home? I don't like it when he's here. (laughs) For some reason, when I heard that, (laughs) I just thought that maybe she wouldn't want me at your house anymore, right? And she's like, you heard that? I'm like, yeah, I heard that. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) right? So you know what it's like when you're unwelcome. But when you're welcome, you know what it's like, too. Because on the flip side, around that same timing, I I was having some just mad issues going on with my family at home, and I just needed a refuge. And this family that I'd kind of met around the way, met the father that met this family, and he just began to just, just bring me into his family. Him and his wife brought me in. They, they, weren't, they didn't have kids that were my age. Um, they, they were just a family who said, hey, we, you could be a part of our family. We don't want you to leave your family, but you could be a part of our family. And they took me in. I mean, guys, when I, when I look back on what they did for me, they just took me in. They fed me. Um, I, I didn't have a car. I didn't really need one, but then they gave me their extra car. Um, I was trying to work out and, and try to go play football, and they're like, ah, oh, you don't have a gym. We'll give you a gym pass that I had for 10 years, um, and then from, from there, I got to college my freshman year, and they were like, you know, we can never get a hold of you in the dorms. We're going to get you a cell phone, and then they got me a cell phone, and I was like, hey, I don't have a mansion, right? I'm just making <laughs> sure, I checked, no. They just, they just took me in and loved me. To this day, they've never asked one thing from me. They've never said, hey, if you, if you do this, if we do this for you, down the line, we're going to expect for you to do this. We're going to expect for you to do something for us. No, 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 they just, they just welcomed me in. Paul is saying, This is what Christ has done for you. He's not asking anything from you. There's nothing you can give to God. He loves you because he loves you. And then then Paul says he does this to glorify God. Okay, if we're going to understand what is the mission of God, we need to understand first and foremost God. A lot of times we go straight to what God has done for us, how he's rescuing, how he's renewing, how he's welcoming us, and that is beautiful, really beautiful. But we need to start first with who is this God? Because we happen to live in a culture, and a particular time, where unless you are a staunch atheist or agnostic, you, you, you believe in God. Most people still say they believe in a God. And that, that God can be anything you want it to be. That, that God can do whatever you want it to do, but it may not always be the God of the Bible. So I wanna, I wanna talk to you about the God of the Bible. Before we can understand his mission, we gotta understand who he is. Our God has always existed. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. And then when we view this God, the view of this God will shape what we know about his mission, and it would also shape how we live our lives. Here's what I mean. If we view God only as a judge, which some of us do, then what we think is all God is after is our morality, and we better keep up to the lines and laws, because if not, we're going to show up in his court, and he's going to get us. Or we view God as this kind of divine police who's driving around, clocking us, seeing how much we're going to sin and how fast we're going to sin to pull us over and then write us a ticket so we can repent and get better. Or, or, or even better, maybe we see God as a creator. He's a creator of all things. And he is a judge. He is a creator. But, but before God even created, who was God? Because for, before God created, he's always existed. And so what do we know to be true about God in which we can relate to him? Well, we always know that God was always a father who's always had a son and the Holy Spirit. And that the three had always existed in community They've always existed in love for one another. That the father desperately loved the son. Always. He's always had a son. There was never a moment that he didn't have a son. There was never a moment where Jesus didn't have a father. There was never a moment that the father and the son were without the spirit. But they just shared love for one another. And they continue to share love to one another. So the first view of this, this God that we know is that he's a father. And that's what Jesus reveals to us. And so in this sharing of the love, the father who so loved the son wanted to share the same intensity, the same affection of which he loved the son with us and creation. And so the context of which he would share that with humanity is he creates a world. Out of the overflow is his love of his love for the son. And so the father, the son, and the spirit create. And at the apex of his creation, he creates us. He creates Adam and he creates Eve. And when Adam and Eve sinned against God, first and foremost, it was not just disobedience. It was not just breaking rules. And so what we lost in the garden wasn't just our ability to obey. You can do the right things and not have the Holy Spirit of Christ in you. What we lost was what we were made for. And that is relationship, communion, and love to be welcomed into that family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That, That we didn't stop loving. We still love. Our loves are just now dysfunctional. And then we begin to love the things that are created instead of the one who created us, namely God. And we chase after these things. And that God in his pursuit of us, God in his love for the Son, the Spirit beginning to manifest his love, does not retract from his plans. And it's not a second thought or a second plan, but he continues to pursue us. And the way he pursues us and welcoming us is that now he sends forth his Son, Jesus Christ in order that we may be welcomed in Christ into this perfect communion. And one day, the context of which we will experience this communion by faith in Christ is in a new heavens and new earth. That's the God in whom we serve. He's a father who loves. And this father who loves has a mission in this world. And the mission in this world, first and foremost, is to welcome, welcome us in Christ. That means whoever you are or wherever you've been, that you're welcomed in Christ. That you, you bring your baggage with you at the door, and he welcomes you in Christ without condition. And so then Paul takes from who God is and talking about his mission within the world. Because what you'll see is the gospel of Jesus Christ is not some abstract thing that kind of floats around. But, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is God choosing to work within human history to bring about his redemptive purposes. Um, in fact, what you'll see here in Romans chapter 8, uh, is ro- chapter 15, beginning in verse 8, is that the Bible could be split up into two parts. Genesis 1 through 11 and Genesis 12 to the very end of Revelation. Genesis 1 through 11 poses the problem. How are we going to make things right with God? How are we going to fix the problem of sin? And then Genesis 12, Genesis to Genesis all the way to Revelation, is God's solution to the problem that was brought up in Genesis 1 through 11. Paul says this. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the uncircumcised to to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Here's what Paul is saying. That Christ who came, who was put forth, the son, this only begotten son of God, that he came into the world. And Paul's looking at Jew and Gentile because understand who Jesus is for all of us. That, That God came into this world in Christ and he became a servant to the circumcised, that's to the Jewish people, to serve them. And he says this, to show God's truthfulness, or in other words, to fulfill God's promises, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercies. Now, if we're going to understand this, we got to understand who the patriarchs are. And the patriarchs are mentioned in the Old Testament. That's, that's uh, Abraham, that's Isaac, that's Jacob, those that, that are the patriarchs. In fact, you go all the way to the ultimate patriarch, which means father, and we have Father Abraham. And Father Abraham had many sons. And many of them had Father Abraham. And I am one of them, and so are you, right? So let's praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm. Spin around. Sit down, right? Those of you guys who are going, I don't know what he's talking about, come to children's ministry next week, and you'll learn that song, right? So, so what we have is Abraham. And so we go all the way back, and the gospel begins, not in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The gospel, God's grand plan to redeem, his, the mission of God, what he's doing in welcoming and redeeming and restoring the world, doesn't start in the New Testament. What Paul is trying to show this Jew and Gentile churches, goes it goes all the way back. This was God's plan. Because we know that the gospel was preached way back then. You go, how do you, what, the gospel? How do you know that? Because Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, the Apostle Paul says this, the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. Meaning the gospel is not this me and Jesus deal, that God comes in and just forgives my sin, and then one day I disappear and go to heaven. It's far more than God just forgiving of your sins. In fact, we hear this gospel story in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And here's how it writes. It says, now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. Look look at all the I wills. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There was this picture where God chose this man named Abram. He wasn't looking for God. God came looking for him and says, guess what? I'm in the plan of redeeming this whole world. Here is my mission. I'm going to welcome people. I'm going to redeem and restore my people and all of creation. And I'm choosing you, Abraham, or Abram. And then he changes name to Abraham. And he goes, and I'm going to bless you. I will, I will, I will. People who curse you, I will curse them. People who bless you, I will bless them. And all the families of the earth, that word families, the Hebrew word for that is ethne. It's where we get the word ethnicities. He's saying every ethnicity will be blessed through you. Meaning the way that God was was working in this world, but his plan from the very beginning was to redeem all cultures. And you see, the, the Old Testament is just this unfolding of this plan, how the people of God cannot do it themselves, how the people of God fail, how the people of God don't understand God's love, how the people of God don't get it until we get to the New Testament and Jesus comes in the scene. And then none other than God himself shows up to fulfill that, that promise, that God promised, that it was up to God. And we see the culmination of this in the end of the book in Revelation, where John says this is what it's going to be like. There's going to be every nation and every tribe worshiping God and the context of the new heavens and the new earth when things will be the way that they're supposed to be. What is the mission of God? That God is welcoming us in Christ Jesus, that he is the one who's redeeming us, and he's going to restore his people as well as all of creation. And Paul is telling this to this church. He's saying, Do you see this is not just this new thing? It's not Paul saying, I have an affinity for Gentiles, and so I want you guys to be one. He goes, No, no, no. This is what God is doing. And we're never going to be able to fulfill his mission until we understand how to be one. Until we understand that the weak have to get along with the strong, and the strong have to get along with the weak. That the politically right and left and the church begin to be one. That races begin to be one. That you don't lose your ethnicity. But God begins to redeem what is beautiful and what is good about who you are as a person and your culture. But he also, through the gospel, begins to critique those things, that you become this new creation and these new people all working of the Holy Spirit. This is what God is doing, and we get to be a part of that. Well, if you're a Jew in this, you're, you're, you're going, um, Paul, that, that, that sounds good. Not really. Because I'm I'm a Jewish person. Show me in the scripture. Because, you know, the Jewish people, they knew their word. Show me in the scripture what God did. Okay, yeah, that was cool. You showed us that Abraham thing, and I get it. I'm one of his sons. I didn't know he was one of his sons. He didn't march with me, right? And so now Paul goes to the text, and he goes to the scripture. Now, hear me this. In the Old Testament, you kind of break down three genres in the Old Testament. There was the law, there was the writings, and that was the prophets. So what Paul does here in quoting from the Old Testament, he takes one piece of uh, scripture from the writings, from the, song, oh, excuse me, from the writings, from the prophets, and from the law. The first one here is from Psalm 89. And here's what Paul says. Uh, Therefore, verse 9, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. He goes, okay, there's a progression here. First, he says, there's, there's a Jewish person who's praising God amongst the Gentiles. And the original context here in Psalm, it's David, King David. And then the next one is, it says, then it said again, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So now you have Jewish people alongside Gentiles praising God. The next progression is Gentiles praising God on their own. Verse 11, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And then you come to this last part in Isaiah, and he says this, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. He's talking about this future time with the Gentiles alongside with the Jews Will have this one king. Uh, I want you to see this so that you can understand what God is doing. Um, what leads up to that verse in Isaiah? That's Isaiah chapter 11. And before that, here's what Isaiah says He says this The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. I I, I love that picture. And some of you are going, wait, is that the Chronicles of Narnia? (laughs) (laughs) Right? What you have here is this, this text in I, I, Isaiah 11, that there's this picture here um, of what's going to happen. In fact, uses this as read during Christmas time. Because the, the writer, Isaiah, he concludes that part with the verse that I just read here, that the root of Jesse will come. And even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him, the Gentiles will have hope. What, what we have there is that Isaiah is, is prophesizing about what's going to happen when the root of Jesse comes. Now, Jesse was the father of King David, and David himself was promised to God by God that one day there would be someone from his lineage who would reign forever. Now, David praised that. He had no idea what, who that would be, but what we see is if you read your Bibles and you get to, you know, when you get to Matthew, that first chapter of Matthew with all those names we just skip over, um, if, you, if you go through that genealogy, what you'll see is the descendant ultimately of David is none other than God's son, Jesus Christ. And that he becomes the king whose kingdom would be established forever. And Isaiah begins to talk about this day and will things will be the way they're supposed to be. That energy there that, that uh, Isaiah gives us, he's going, don't you see the lion will lay with the lamb? Like, that doesn't happen now. There's this picture of this baby who's weaned from, from his mother. And he just kind of walks around and goes, oh, there's a cobra hole. And his mom's like, yeah, put your hand in there. And somehow she's still a good parent because that's the way it's supposed to be that, that there, there is this day that's coming where God himself with his kingdom will be fully restored and he will reign over all things and over all people, Jew and Gentile. Pa- Paul is making this clear to the church, primarily to the Jewish people and the Gentiles, to say, do you see, Christ is the fulfillment of it all. Everything that God was doing in this world, everything that God is doing in this world, his mission is now wrapped up into the work of his son Jesus on your behalf. That, that now, the kingdom of God has already begun to break in. That life that we long for, I mean, even if you're not a follower of Christ, that, that eternity is in your heart, and you may not use that language, but there's a longing for you to answer the questions of who am I? And, and how did it get this way, this world? And how did I get this way? And is there a way to make it better? And Christ comes and says, there is a way, and he is the way. And that the power of his kingdom is leaking in at now into the hearts of his people. That he's beginning to satisfy those longings in our hearts. Those longings for us to be one with one another. Those longings for us to be one with God. That he's beginning to enter in now through the presence and power of his spirit to fulfill what he's doing. And Paul is telling this church, the reason why you guys become one is not just because I think it's a cool thing called diversity. It's because this is God's mission to welcome you. God's mission to redeem you. And God's mission ultimately to restore you, to open up that loving relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that you may be welcomed into the family of God in the work and through the work of Jesus Christ. Paul says, that's what he's doing. That's his mission. And we we step back from that and and, and we see this picture, this meta-narrative of what the scriptures teach of what God is doing, this God who is a loving Father. And those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we we look at that and go, well, what, what, what? what are we to do? How can we join in with what you're doing? And I, I believe our response should be that of Isaiah. If you ever read Isaiah chapter 6, there's this moment where Isaiah encounters God. He shows up into the temple, and the last person he's expecting to see is God. And, and God's there, this vision of God, and, and, and he sees God for who he is. There's this moment that he comes to realization of, okay, I've been a good church-going Hebrew person, but I never knew that what, what God was like. And he goes, if that's who God is, his words were, I, I, woe to me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, which I think is unique because the way he made his living was by speaking. And he's going, me, the best part of me is unclean if that's who God is. Woe to me, I'm undone. He's pronouncing a curse on himself. And then what it says is that the seraphim comes and then touches his lips, the picture of God atoning his sins. And that he knew now that this God who was holy, this God who was other, this God who's transcendent is now is imminent, that he can draw near to him. And then, immediately after that, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are talking, hey, we got this mission, we got this plan, and they're, they're saying, who will go for us? And Isaiah overhears it, and the first thing he says, here am I, send me. Like, like here am I, God, I, I, I want to do whatever it is that you're doing in this world. I want to play my part. And, and that's what we have to become as a church, that if God is welcoming people in, in Jesus without condition, I want to welcome people in the name of Christ without conditions. I want to welcome them into our family. I want to welcome them into God's church. I want to welcome them in the name of Jesus. If Jesus is ultimately uh, pouring himself out for the marginalized, for the underserved and under resourced, I want to do the same thing. If Jesus' plan is to reconcile all of these people that they, they can keep their uniquenesses and yet become one in Christ Jesus, I, I, I want to follow this Jesus. Here am I, send me. And then there's a reality, right? That's that charge you get at a winter camp or a high school camp. You're like, I want to follow Jesus, God. I'm never going to sin. I wrote all my sins down, and I put them in the fire. They're burned. They're never going to come back again. And you realize your heart's beating. You're like, oh, they're still there, right? They're in my heart. Well, how am I going to live out this? How are we going to live out this? Here I am, send me. Well, here's what I love about the way God always calls us to do something. He never leaves us without his grace and his power. The Holy Spirit calls us to Jesus gives us the desire to follow him and to know Jesus to follow him as disciples. And then whatever plan or whatever mission God calls us on, his mission, we begin to follow him in the same power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, look at verse 13 with me. It says may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I love that. If there's one thing I would say that we are weak on as a church, it is a reliance on the Holy Spirit. I think sometimes we can rely on good teaching. We can rely on good theological books. And even to some degree, we can rely on each other. But I'm not really sure if we really are people who are relying on the Holy Spirit to be on mission for Jesus. As we follow Jesus into the workplaces that we'll go tomorrow, as we follow Jesus into um, whatever vacation or vocation that we're on, as we follow Jesus into the city, into this community, are we, are we relying on the Holy Spirit or are we relying on personality? Are Relying on the Holy Spirit or relying on good behavior. And, and what Paul is saying is, may the God of hope, this hope of the reality that Christ is going to re- redeem all things, that every tear will be wiped away from our eyes, that we will walk in the cool of the day with God, that we are welcoming his family, and we will fully realize that. It will be actualized one day that we have the hope of that. And so we can live our lives Free free of insecurities, free of people's opinions of us, free from the penalty and the guilt of sin, that we can actually be free. And the way that we live this out as God's people, he says, is by being filled with joy and peace and believing. That's not just um, believing one time in Jesus. That's every single day as you take a step, step with God that you are trusting in the work of Christ. You are trusting in his kingdom, not building your own kingdom, because you found your joy in him. And he says this, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Meaning the way that your hope increases, the way that you continue to walk in Christ is trusting in him and the Holy Spirit empowers you for this ministry that he's called us on. And so, um, let me get practical now. Okay, this is the mission of God. He's walking with us in Christ. He's redeeming and restoring his people all in creation. So what? So, so what is our response? How do we join in that in the power of the Holy Spirit? Well, From 14 all the way to 21, let me tell you what Paul's doing here, because we're going to move through this part quick, is Paul is beginning to talk about his ministry. Like I said, he's done with the letter, and he's just talking about his ministry, and I think there's some things we can learn from his ministry. Um, Two things I would say that we respond to the mission of God and him welcoming people in Christ and redeeming and restoring um, his people and creation is, one, we make disciples in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We make disciples in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the second one is we share the gospel. Let's do with that first one. Make re- disciples in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 14, I myself am satisfied in, about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with the knowledge, and able to instruct, instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles and the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Here's what Paul is saying. Goes, I'm satisfied with you. You're my people. I, I said some things that were kind of hard, but I had to by the way of reminder, and I did this because of the ministry that was given to me as-, as a priest. He's not saying that he is a priest, but he's talking about the function that he served people with the gospel. I love that. When it comes to making disciples, we're called to make disciples according to the gospel and in the power of the gospel. Because that's the only thing that can bring about transformation. Sometimes we find ourselves making disciples um, according to the culture. That ain't it. Sometimes we make disciples according to even our church culture, and we raise good Christian men and good Christian women. That ain't it. Um, we sometimes make disciples in according to our own personality. And so the people who follow us as we follow Christ, they're really following us, not Jesus. And that ain't it. Uh, but the only thing that can bring transformation, he says, I served you the gospel, and that the Gentiles may be acceptable. How were they acceptable? Because they were sanctified. That word sanctified literally means to set apart. Paul has an imagery here of the temple, where they would have certain items that would be set apart for a purpose of God. He said the Gentiles were set apart by the Holy Spirit, and so we're discipled in the gospel, because the gospel is the only one and the only thing, the only power that brings about transformation. You go, what do you mean? Well, go back to verse 14, which I think is interesting here from Paul. He says this, 14, he says, I am satisfied about you, my brothers, and he says that you yourselves are full of goodness and filled with all knowledge and able to, stru- uh, to instruct. I love that you're full of goodness because if, you, if, you, if, you, <laughs> if you've been around in this church, man, you know I'm a sinner. Right? I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. It's like uncle, right? Um, to hear Paul going, you know what? I'm satisfied about you guys. You, you're full of goodness. Your knowledge. You're able to instruct. Like You're ready to go. And, and you go, well, how could Paul say that in chapter 15? Because if you go all the way back, 12 chapters and chapter 3, do you remember what Paul said? No one is righteous. No, not one. No one does good. All of you. And then he goes, your throats are an open grave. And it's like, oh, man, that sucks, right? And then all of a sudden in chapter 15, it goes from no one is righteous. Your throats an open grave. You're horrible. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. And he goes, guys, I am satisfied in you, right? It's like, what happened? Did Paul change? No, Paul didn't change. Then what changed between chapter 3 and chapter 15? You changed because the Holy Spirit in Christ changed you. That chapter 5 began to talk about how you were in Adam. And in Adam, we were separated from that lifeline of love that we talked about. We still love, but we just loved ourselves and we loved other things, not God. But then also in chapter 5, it says now that we are in Christ. And in Christ, we are accepted. We are legitimate children of the Father. And Paul begins to manifest that even in chapter 8 where he says, here's what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's backing up the truck and he's pouring out all God's love into your heart." And it continues to say, and now what the Spirit is doing is testifying with your spirit that you are sons. And that it cries out, Abba, Father, that you were you, you, you welcomed in God's family. And that in your moments of weakness, the Spirit begins to pray on your behalf. And so now Paul can say that you are good because you are. And the works that you can do and the works you're called to do are not works to to make yourself right before God. There are works and respond to his acceptance. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ and discipleship is us reminding each other that all we need is need. That we just need to accept the acceptance of God, of us. I I love what one writer says. He says, here's what discipleship is. It's one beggar telling the other beggar where they both can find bread that we begin to follow Christ, that God is doing this transforming work in us, not as we just follow the culture, but as the gospel begins to transform our lives. I love that. And here's what I want to tell you, guys. God loves you, right? And he doesn't just love you, he likes you. You know how that is sometimes? Like, we can love people because we have to. I love them, but I don't like them, right? Right? God loves you and he likes you. And sometimes, and I could be guilty of this too, when we teach the gospel because we want you to understand grace so much, we taught you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. And then sometimes you think, the only way that I could ever be loved by God is if I'm like hiding behind Christ. And the reality is you are accepted in Christ, but he loves you. And, And sometimes we think if I ever get out of Christ, God's gonna say, get back into Christ. What are you doing? Get your little, you know, it's like, you better get back in Christ. And God's like, no, 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 Christ has already done the work. He loves you. you, you don't, when when you are hidden in Christ, your personality is not hidden when you are wrapped into the life and love of Christ, who you are, is not. Him. God still sees you. He's attracted to you. He's affectionate for you. He, you know, we always think Jesus came to die for us. As if Jesus was like, Father, I got these friends that I want to bring over the house. And God was like, Man, tell them to close the door and don't air condition all of Arizona when they come in, right? It's like, it's like this grumpy dad who's like, yeah, well, they can come over. No, the father is saying, I so desperately have something that's missing in heaven that I want. <laughs> and Jesus, will you go and get them? my family. And Jesus is saying, my thought exactly. And the Spirit is saying, I'm with you too. And you see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit throughout this text working through the ministry of the gospel. When we become disciples of Jesus, God begins to transform us. And we make disciples in response to the same power that transformed us. The second thing here is we share the gospel. Paul says here, is that his goal here, if you continue to read in 15, um, Primarily looking here in verse 18, he says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and by deed, by the power of signs and wonders, and by the power of the Holy Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and in all the way around Ilicrum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has been already named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. Paul says this, all I want to do is boast about what Christ is doing. And when it comes to sharing the gospel, he's saying, one, this personal relationships, that's what we see from Paul. That is that you you love God enough to have everyday conversations about him, regularly and often. Just talk about him. You don't have to set a time just to share the gospel with people, just to to show people about who Christ is. The second part that we see is, he says, by prayer in the Holy Spirit, he goes, it came through power of signs and wonders and word and deed, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. We shouldn't be afraid of signs and wonders. The reality of it is you have some people who want the Holy Spirit apart from God's Word. And then you have some people who want God's Word and His teaching apart from the Holy Spirit. We're saying you can't separate those things. And that the ministry of the gospel always goes forth by the Holy Spirit. And so we pray our heads off for people that don't know Jesus. And we pray for signs and wonders that God would do. Not that we would magnify in the signs and wonders. That's the problem why people are afraid of them. Because people only want to talk about the signs and wonders. A sign by its very nature is a sign to point to something. And that is the work of Christ. And the last thing that we see what Paul says, he goes, goes, I want to name Christ. I want him to be preached where he hasn't been preached. (laughs) And then for some of us, that means to people who have never heard. People that we work with. Our family members. Our friends. People in this city. To see the mission of God. And our response unfold in this city to some of you. That's saying, God's saying, no, not in Tempe, not in Arizona, not in America. I want you to go somewhere where literally no one's heard the gospel, where there's no churches. The God is, that's not the call for everybody, but some of you, that is your call. And if that is your call, you respond to God and you say, here am I, send me. Because what you realize is your joy and your life is wrapped in the hymn. You have something that will never be taken away from you and that you are part of the family of God. And to some of the family members, he says, leave where you are, go somewhere else, follow me, share the gospel with people who have never heard it. But to all of us, it's make disciples and share the gospel because we have been welcomed in Christ and now we join in in his plan, his mission to welcome, redeem, and restore his people and all of creation. Amen? Let's pray.